Well, good morning. Welcome to The Story Church. I'm so glad you're here. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at The Story. And, and on behalf of the whole team and the whole family here at The Story, I just want to say welcome to all of you that are gathered here in person at River Oaks or over at our Timber Grove campus. I love you all so much, and, uh, and I hope everything's going well over there. And obviously, everyone joining us online, you are part of The Story's online campus and part of our family today, no matter where you are. Hey, I know that your time is precious, and the fact that you would take time out of your normal routine in life to come and be a part of the story, um, even if it's just for an hour or a little bit more, it really means the world to me. And I hope that you find the story, whether you're, you're in person or joining online, I hope you find this experience at the story to be meaningful and, and life-giving and inspiring. Um, we're in the last leg of a three-part series now, uh, that, a series of messages that's called The Next Chapter, and um, this is part three. Uh, what we're really doing with this series is exploring this crossroads moment that we're at as a church, as a community. And this is, um, I guess, a little bit native to the stories community, a little bit of inside baseball with this series, more than usual, that's for sure. But even if you don't call the story home and you're a guest here today or something, I think this message will resonate with you because we've all found ourselves at the same sort of fork in the road, especially with uh, the slow but steady emergence from this worldwide pandemic from COVID-19. Slowly but surely, we're emerging from this pandemic and all of us are changed because of the experience we've just had. And the same is true for our church. Everything is different now, and I'm not sure things are gonna go back to the way they were before. And so as we come out of this pandemic, um, we're facing some choices, things to, to go back to, things to leave behind, right? Um, now, also as a church, uh, more locally here at The Story, we are facing perhaps the, the most intense decision that we've had to make as a community so far in our six and a half years of existence. Between now and the end of this year, the Stories River Oaks campus, our main campus, our HQ, is going to be relocating. To where? It's anybody's guess at this point. We still don't have a lot of uh, concrete information there yet, but um, we, we, we are embracing this moment. Uh, for all of its uncertainty, for all of its risk, and certainly I've, I've been a little bit on edge. I've, I've had some sleepless nights. But with all that being said, we are embracing this moment as an opportunity, a real um, once-in-a-generation opportunity, I think, to ask hard questions about um, the way we've done things before and, and what from our past should we take forward with us into the future. Um, in terms of how we do church, how much of what we've been doing should we keep doing? You know, a moment like this one where there's been a massive disruption, it can really be liberating in that way. And so what we've been doing with the next chapter series is exploring some of the most core practices, the fundamental values that have been a part of the story that we definitely want to carry forward with us uh, into this next uh, chapter of our life together. Okay, so, so far in this series, we've talked about the importance of challenging comfort. This has, from the beginning, been a core practice at the Story Church. We want to push back against every temptation to cave to simple convenience and comfort because we understand comfort to be like the kryptonite of the Christian faith. Something might be comfortable and, and super convenient, but it, if it is, it's very likely that it's not entirely God's will for your life. 
God's will, according to scripture, seems to challenge us and, and push us out of our comfort zones to embrace people and situations and challenges that may not be very comfortable at all. So that was the first core practice we explored. The second last week um, that we talked about is uh, how we inspire deeper conversations. You know, it's so, it's so easy for us to get caught up in ordinary, mundane conversations. Small talk, right? We just talk about how the, the Astros are doing, or we talk about things we can see and taste and touch. But we know as people of faith that there's more going on in the world than just what can be seen, more than just what meets the eye. And so we wanna, we wanna encourage and inspire deeper conversations between friends and spouses and brothers and sisters in Christ. We want people to dig deeper together because we think that's how we, we grow together. And third, we're gonna, today we're gonna talk about um, this, this third core principle of pursuing truth. Look, pursuing truth has always been near and dear to the heart of the story community. Um, and, and that's because we've always championed the, uh, the, the principle of asking questions. We've always wanted people to express their doubts. And this isn't typical for churches sometimes. I think we probably talk more about the value of questions and doubts than a lot of churches you, you may have experienced. But that's because we believe that the truth exists. We believe there is something foundational, something universally true, and that by some miracle, God has wired the human brain and consciousness to be able to access that truth. We can comprehend it, we can understand it. And so if that's the case, we tend to believe that pursuing the truth and seeking to comprehend what is true is one way that we honor God. Jesus said that we should love God with all of our mind. And the pursuit of truth is one way um, that we do that. And so, yes, we're gonna continue to value questions. We're gonna continue to encourage healthy doubts because we think those things can really fuel a deeper faith. Now, this conversation about truth that we're gonna have today is especially important for this um, time that we're in right now. I mean, everybody's heard the phrase post-truth culture. We're in a post-truth world in which it's so hard to know what's true and what isn't. And, and we, we have to decide when we're being gaslit, when we're being fed alternative facts, or when we're seeing fake news. Post-truth is a, a relatively new turn of phrase that simply means relating to circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief are, all right? So emotion and personal belief are more influential than actual objective facts or objective truth, as it were. Now, post-truth was coined the uh, 2016 new word of the, of the year, according to the Oxford Dictionary. Now, this, this phrase is really indicative or, or symptomatic of something that's actually happening in our culture. And, and, and we're living in this unprecedented, uh, unprecedented time when, when no one knows what's true or real. And everyone feels like someone's always trying to fool you. You don't know what's a real video, what's a deep fake. You don't know what's real news or what's fake news. And, and it can be really um, frustrating. It can be obviously uh, 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 you know, a little bit disillusioning uh, to us. Now, um, the, the place this leads us to is this frame of mind where the only truth that actually can be known is whatever you've experienced the truth to be, right? And I think, 
I'm saying this mercifully and not judgmentally, but I think this is where most of us function every day, this idea that the only truth you can really know is yours and the only truth I can really know and access and hold on to is mine. And my truth is made up not only of objective reality, my truth is mostly made up of my experiences and feelings and opinions <laughs> about um, uh, reality, all right? So now, this kind of uh, logical fallacy is, is easy to debunk, and I don't wanna be dismissive of anyone's particular experience uh, in our community today. But I would like you to consider as an example the image uh, that made the rounds um, years ago of this young woman as she looks in the opposite direction, away from our perspective as the viewer. Now, of course, that's what this image is, unless your brain is wired a little differently. And instead of focusing in on the young woman who's looking away from you, you see the older sort of peasant, haggard looking woman who is staring to the side in this image. One image um, that, that says two different things. And there are some of you who instinctively saw the younger woman and, and, and others of you instinctively saw the image of the older woman. But what, which image you happen to see doesn't change the fact that both women are in this image, right? Both are real, both are there. And this would seem to support the relativistic notion that one person can have their truth and another person can have theirs because both camps are equally right, right? Well, only insofar as we ignore the fact that somewhere in the world there is an artist who sketched this image originally. There is, a, uh, there is someone who made this image and intentionally included both women's faces in this image for the sake of the optical illusion. That was the whole purpose behind it. And so sometimes the truth isn't what it seems. Sometimes beneath your truth and mine, there is a greater truth to be explored, pursued, and acknowledged. In 2015, there was a picture of this infamous dress that took the internet by storm. It was called the dress that broke the internet. And this uh, dress itself is fairly unremarkable, except for the fact that half of all Americans looked at this dress and for some reason saw a black and blue dress, while the rest of us who knew the truth looked at this dress and saw a white and gold dress. Now, this image and the responses to it tore this nation apart. <laughs> Families broke up and, and lovers separated and, and friendships never recovered from the controversial arguments that broke out over a team blue and black versus team white and gold. And, uh, and so many, many were, were upset by this, but it is obviously in good fun. But the real question, the philosophical question is, uh, who's right? And doesn't it seem that this is one example in which truth is merely in the eye of the beholder? Because both camps feel equally right and neither camp can really understand how the other camp came to their conclusions because clearly the dress is whatever I see it, uh, whatever color I see it to be. Now, thankfully for us, a few weeks after the controversy died down, the owner of the actual dress who took the picture made herself available for comment uh, with the press. And several news outlets reported on this and she told the world what I never saw coming, but half of America already knew it. The actual dress was black and blue. 
Team black and blue, you were right all along. Listen, uh, just because some people saw the dress uh, as white and gold, that didn't make it so. so. Sometimes the complicated thing about truth is that our perspective can be skewed or we can be deceived. And even something that looks true is not. Now, truth actually does matter. That's what I want us to think about today is, is how much truth matters. And any student of history knows that every time a human civilization has, because of its success as a civilization or its level of comfort, because it got complacent, oftentimes civilizations will lose sight of the objective truth, the bedrock on which they built their civilization. A lot of civil, great civilizations were built on this foundation of some kind of objective or reasonable truth. But over time, that sort of corrodes and, and it falls by the wayside. And when that happens, without fail, chaos ensues. I mean, universally, this is the case, that chaos and depravity and violence uh, take hold. Now, in the Old Testament, we see examples of this in this series of stories that's collected and compiled in this book called Judges. Now, Judges tells one story after another about how a civilization that God called together continually descended into chaos because it lost sight of the objective truth that God instilled in them to begin with. And most of those stories began with the ominous words, in those days, there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And because everyone did what was right in their own eyes, no one was really trying to do what was Right, with a capital R. No one was trying to do what was objectively true or just or good. It was just whatever I feel like is good today that people were doing. And, and Israel, the people of God, paid the price again and again. The writer of Proverbs put it this way. He said in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way to death. In the Christian perspective, from a biblical worldview, the, the way of moral relativism, where your truth can be yours and mine can be mine, and, and we just need to not step on each other, we need to not be so arrogant as to claim that either one of our truth is, is uh, superior in any way to the other, we just need to coexist. This way of thinking from a Christian or biblical perspective is uh, the way to, um, to put it bluntly, death, or at least to chaos and uh, sort of uh, uh, social upheaval in a negative way. This is seen throughout scripture again and again. Now in the New Testament, we're introduced to this historical figure who was a Roman official named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate has, I think, probably the most compelling thing to say about truth from a human perspective in all of scripture, but he's biblically kind of this background figure. Now, Pontius Pilate was the governor of the Roman province called Judea in the first part of the first century. We know this from all kinds of historical records. But other than his name and his title, we know very little about this Roman soldier who rose through the ranks to become an officer. But historians have been able to piece together context clues to help us figure out what kind of man Pontius Pilate must have been this man who played such a key role in Jesus's condemnation and crucifixion and what kind of world he must have um, lived in. So I wanna talk a little bit about our friend Pontius Pilate today. His family name, Pontius, uh, actually nails it for us. He undoubtedly 
came from a small, really band of, of peasant warriors in South Central Italy. Um, and these, these peasant warriors were known as the Samnites. And the Samnites weren't accepted by Roman culture. They weren't true Roman citizens until a little bit after Pontius Pilate's uh, day. And they were only accepted by Rome uh, in the end because Rome was tired of fighting them in one war after another. The Samnites were like a thorn in uh, the Romans' side. It was like a, a pebble in the empire's shoe. And, and they lived right there in Rome's own backyard and they just never let anything happen easily for Rome. Even though they were kind of nobodies compared to the great and mighty Roman Empire, these peasants from nowhere, from these backwater territories, they just continually fought against the Roman Empire. That was Pontius Pilate's identity growing up. He was raised to hate everything about the evil empire of Rome. Rome had been raping and pillaging and conquering his forefathers generation after generation. And, and, and so undoubtedly Pontius Pilate was raised to despise Rome. And so it really does beg the question, how in the world this man became a Roman soldier who became a Roman officer, who became appointed the, the prefect or governor of a Roman province. It's an extraordinary thing to consider. And I think it has a lot to do with our conversation today about truth. Now, the one thing we can assume safely about Pontius Pilate is that his life could not have been easy. I mean, after growing up in that backwater uh, province where people weren't even granted citizenship or full humanity, where people were poor and always fighting as rebels against this overlord kind of empire as, uh, as Rome must have been, Pilate, as an enemy of the state, must have had a hard life. And he must have had to overcome those circumstances of his life somehow because he ended up where he ended up, right? So how does someone like Pilate, coming from where he came from, end up where he ended up? He must have overcome those limitations by virtue of his own hard work, by virtue of his own sort of opportunism or his own ambition. He must have impressed the right people in the right way at the right time. I'm not even... I'm not even saying it's bad to hustle. I've been a, a hustler from nowhere at various points in my life. I kind of respect this from uh, Pontius Pilate's past, but I think it's clear that's probably how he got where he got. Now, once he became a Roman soldier, uh, no doubt he had to make a good impression on the right people to keep getting promoted, but do you know who he must have lost at that point in time? Everyone he ever loved. No Samnite warrior could still be accepted by his family and friends uh, after he became a Roman soldier, much less a Roman officer and uh, a Roman governor after that. And so we can imagine what, um, what his young adulthood must have been like being forsaken by his family and friends back home. Now, making Pilate's life even more complicated was the fact that his boss, the man he needed to impress more than anyone in the world to keep his head on his shoulders, literally, and to keep his job, was, uh, was this emperor of Rome named Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was uh, known for being neurotic and hot-headed, hot-tempered, and uh, mercurial. And in the year 26 AD, Tiberius appointed Pilate as governor over Judea. Now, this was a big deal for someone like Pilate, but it was still just an entry-level job. No one wanted to be the governor of Judea. It was as remote and backwater as a Roman province could be, and it was a very difficult 
parcel of land to keep the peace in. And that was a Roman governor's only job, keep the peace, Pax Romana, law and order, keep the tax dollars flowing. And that's easier said than done in the Holy Land, which is the area that, that Pontius Pilate was put in charge of. And he was only given 3,000 Roman soldiers to maintain the peace in the Holy Land, the most contentious piece of land in, in human history. So he had a, a hard job. And that might be why he is known uh, far and wide for being ruthless in the way that he did his work. He ruled with an iron fist. He had a no tolerance policy for any kinds of rebellions. Two different unrelated historians have attested to the fact that he was not only brutal and bloodthirsty, but also that he was very, uh, he, he was very strategic in the way that he went about his business. So he would squash a rebellion by sending spies into the uh, Judeans, uh, you know, parades and, and festivals. And he would basically plant warriors within the parades themselves. And before they even got carried away, those warriors would be laying siege from within to the, uh, to the Jews and Samaritans. So he was always a step ahead and he was always known for being brutal. The only thing I think that outpaced his bloodthirst was his thirst for power. And I think that's what uh, motivated him um, and, and, and kept him, uh, uh, you know, being successful as governor of Judea. Now, he was only present in Jerusalem three or four times a year. Um, during the high holy times of the Jewish calendar. And he went to Jerusalem to, during those times to be able to police the festivals. And one year, a few years after he took office, one year there was one rebel in particular that he and other officials had their eye on because he had amassed such a following. This Jesus of Nazareth had, had paraded himself into the city of Jerusalem just before the festival was getting started on the back of a donkey and people were going crazy and calling him their king. This was, this was a problem for Pilate. Pilate's hope was that the Jewish leadership would handle it and would stone this upstart rabbi to death so that he wouldn't have to worry about it. That's not exactly how it went. As we'll see in this, uh, in this passage we're gonna read. From John chapter 18, verses 28 to 38. All right, this is from the Gospel of John. It says, they led Jesus from Caiaphas, who was the high priest, who had put Jesus on trial in his house um, that night. They led him from that trial to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So this is a high holy time and going into a Gentile space like that would have defiled them and, and canceled them for the festival. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him to you. Now, there's subtext here, as we're gonna see, um, at some point, Pilate becomes aware that Jesus has called himself a king, even though they don't answer it. And you have to read between the lines a little bit. That's why the Jewish leadership has brought Jesus to Pilate to have him charged with sedition because the Jewish leaders didn't just want him convicted of heresy and stoned to death. They wanted him hanging on a, on a tree, on a cross, so they could say, Hey, look at Deuteronomy 21, 23, where it says any man who hangs on a tree is, is under God's curse. So they wanted to say Jesus was cursed so they could be done with him and the crowds would go away. 
That's what's going on here. Pilate told them, you take him, judge him according to your law. And then they said, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death. That's a half truth. A little bit of, little bit of deception here. They could put someone to death with Pilate's blessing. But anyway, the Jewish leaders declared this. And they said this so that Jesus's words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. And then Pilate went back to the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? Pause just a second. What's Jesus saying? Are you really interested in the truth? Or are you just interested in hearsay and rumors and what other people think, other people's opinions in politics? What are you looking for? And Pontius Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. That's all he needed to know because this is sedition and punishable by death. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said, what is truth? All right. One of my favorite little exchanges in all of scripture and one of my favorite questions in the whole Bible, this three-word question, what is truth coming from this man, this powerful man, Pontius Pilate? Now, notice Jesus here wasn't talking about truth in an ethereal way or in an esoteric way. He was talking about the truth as a very practical, very real, very attainable thing. He talks about the truth as though it's something specific. But Pilate's answer wasn't about the truth. It's, Pilate's talking about something else. He's in a completely different frame of mind. His answer wasn't, okay, so Jesus, what is the truth? If you wanna talk about the truth, tell me what the truth is. What does Pilate say? No, 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 he says, what is truth? And that's a very different question if you're listening, right? The, the difference between what is the truth and what is truth is vast, I mean, this is the sort of question that a man asks when he's seen too much, too much corruption, when he's heard too many lies, when he's told too many lies, when he's chased his ambition and his thirst for power for so long that it's not that he questions which path could lead him to the truth. It's that he questions whether the truth is a thing at all. Because all he's been doing for his whole adult life is looking for power. And the quest for power always muddies the water of truth. You know, whenever you become a little too comfortable with the dissonance between the quest for power and the quest for truth, you find yourself in Pilate's shoes. Look, Pilate grew up knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's evil in Rome, that the empire is evil and to be resisted. It is not an agent of good or an agent of God, but somewhere along the way, that same evil empire became Pilate's meal ticket. It became his path 
to power, potentially. And so ever so gradually, the truth got squishy. The truth became negotiable. And I would venture to guess that a man like Pontius Pilate found ways to justify his decisions to sleep with the enemy, so to speak, to to go to the other side, to partner up with his oppressors. And I know that men like Pilate offer the same justifications again and again for those kinds of compromises because I am not that different from Pilate and neither are you most likely. Most of us find ourselves in this decision. It's not that far fetched to find ourselves in this position. You know, those kinds of justifications we offer up. If if you can't beat them, join them. And once you join them, don't let them change you, you know? And we'll say things like, I'm sure Pilate said to his family, I'm gonna join the Roman army and I'm gonna change them from within. Have you ever heard that kind of phrase before? As a compromise for doing something you know is not true or, or right or good, but it's something you really wanna do nonetheless. And those kinds of things seem innocuous, taken one at a time, but all told, on the whole, they really do a number on your moral compass. And that's exactly what happened to Pontius Pilate. This man was a grown man in his early 40s, most likely, when he had this exchange with Jesus. And he didn't even know if truth existed at all. I mean, that's how lost and confused and confounded he was. Not because he was stupid or evil or anything. He was, he was just compromised. He was truth compromised because he prioritized power and the search for power and money and comfort and convenience over truth. We have all been there, right? Most of us have had that boss or that that potential client or we've had, you know, that uh, potential love interest or that professor in class who saw the world very differently than we did. And we had a set of truth or a set of values that pointed us toward the truth. And they had a very different understanding of the truth and how the world should work. But we faced a situation where if we just pretended for a while, if we just assimilated just a little bit and made them believe that we think the way they think, you know, it doesn't have to change us. We just do it for a little while just to get what we want. And and maybe we'll get a reward out of it, a promotion or a payout, or maybe we'll get a a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or maybe we'll get a better grade by being someone we're not just for a moment. And, And, you know, the reason that kind of thing is tempting is because it works sometimes, a lot of times. And the more that sort of thing works, the more tempting it becomes and the more easy it is for us to justify the compromises that we are making. But every single time we sacrifice truth for alternative facts and convenient lies, we get one step closer to relativism, which may be the best, simplest way to understand most of our relationship to uh, uh, truth. It's definitely how I would describe our contemporary culture's relationship with truth. Now, in our defense, before, you, you, I, before I start to sound too judgy, I just want to say there are reasons, good reasons, why absolute truth is not popular anymore. There are good justifications for not putting trust, wholesale trust, in overarching, sweeping, universal truth claims, like generations might have done in the past. 
And there's a string of three or four generations now that have been absolutely heartbroken and disappointed by every institution we were told we could trust in. And we put our lives in the hands of these people or these systems. And one time after another, we were dropped. Generations of Americans have been disappointed and and let down by institutions of family and marriage, for example. And that has left so many of us broken on the floor, just, just unable to trust again in anything true, anything absolute. We've all lost faith in government for various reasons, mostly really good reasons. Governments have let us down again and again and will continue to let us down. A lot of us have been, you know, really patriotic in the past, and it really hurts to find certain things out about your country's past or its present and realize that your country, though it has great things about it, good qualities, good aspirations, it's not perfect, it's broken. And, and you know, you can't put your full faith and trust in it. And of course, a lot of us have been let down and continue to be let down by institutions of of organized religion. A lot of you have been let down by churches, people like me. And you put your full sort of faith and credit in the God represented in the churches you've been a part of. You put your whole life in the hands of of pastors or church leaders. and, And in some cases, you were egregiously violated. In some cases, you were just really disappointed again and again to see the behavior of the leaders who read scripture on Sundays, not living up to the moral standard of the scriptures they read and being okay with it or seemingly so. We've all seen religion and politics get mixed up together and we've been disgusted by that. I mean, how do you keep putting faith in the God that these churches are are talking about when these churches have broken your heart again and again? I get it. I get the reasons why we've given up on universal truth. I mean, I'm right there with you in a lot of ways. I've been disappointed by the same institutions you have. Half, sometimes I feel like half of our childhood heroes are either in prison or they should be. It's like even the people we thought we could trust, the people on our TVs or computer screens, the people we looked up to, turns out they were deeply flawed and deeply human. Look, I understand. I've tried it all. I've put my faith and trust in Bible Belt, civil religion. I put my trust in the U.S. of A. as a good patriotic Southern boy. I've put my faith and trust in a later part of my life in in liberal social activism. You know, I put my faith and trust in politics. I've put my faith and trust in intellectual pursuits. I put my faith and trust in this law school dream that I had once. I've tried to chase money. I've tried to chase all kinds of things. I put my faith and trust in my own instincts or in my own impulses and trying to satisfy my own desires. And you know what? I've never found any of those things to be true. None of those things could ever deliver on whatever promises I thought they were making. They all let me down. They all left me wanting. They all were just lies until I found Jesus. Until I found Jesus. And in Jesus, I found something truly and remarkably different. It was Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said, he came that we might know the truth and have the truth. And he said he was sending his spirit to be our advocate, the spirit of 
the truth, he said. And ever since I've put my full faith and trust in Jesus, not in men who talk about Jesus, not in churches with Jesus on the door, not in any other institutions of man, but merely in Jesus himself, I found him to be the one who is trustworthy and true, the one who never disappoints or lets me down. It is a little amazing, I guess, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, given how many institutions and people have disappointed us. But it's amazing to me nonetheless how many intelligent, otherwise really brilliant people believe that uh, truth can really be relative. After everything I've seen and been through, everything I've tried and failed and finding Jesus, it's all opened my eyes to just how absurd an idea that really is that your truth can be yours and my truth can be mine. There's no absolute truth that's superior to any other. Because deep down, we know that can't be the case. Deep down, we know that there are some things that are truer than others. And if there are on the spectrum of truth, some things that are truer than others, then somewhere along the line of that spectrum, there is absolute truth, absolute good, absolute reality. And that's what Christians claim about Jesus. That's what we believe about God. And that that really prevents us from believing that truth can be relativistic in this way. Look, if your truth leads you to believe that, you know, white people or any race of people are superior to any and all other races of people based on the color of your skin, I, I think that truth claim is on its face inferior to a truth claim that says all people are created equal in the eyes of God. You know, some truths are just not true. Some truth claims are lies. Or or at least we could say they're less true than others. If if your religion, for example, uh, leads you to believe and and leads you to believe that it's true that God would have women be second-class citizens, that, that, you know, infidels, people that don't agree with your religion or people that fight against your religion should have their heads cut off or be punished in some public or really painful way. And on this other hand, you've got this truth claim, this religion that says we should love not just our friends, not just our neighbors, we should love our enemies. I think there's a stark and real difference between those kinds of truth claims. And I think it's clear which one should be considered superior. The dress is either black and blue or it's white and gold. And Jesus is either the truth or he isn't. And if he is, then we can't put him in the same category as other religious leaders or other kinds of prophets. He must be the absolute truth. He must be God. As a culture, we're going to continue to be suspicious of any and all claims of absolute truth. These claims appear to us to be manipulative. They appear to us, they feel like human attempts to control people. And we don't want to be controlled. We want to maintain our freedom. But much like our definition of truth has been skewed by relativism, so has our definition of freedom. Jesus said he came to deliver to us the absolute truth of God and that that truth would set us free. He said that his truth, his absolute objective reality doesn't confine you or manipulate you or coerce you. 
It doesn't oppress you. It is the one and only truth that sets you free. Some of us are so scared of believing in something as big as Jesus because we don't want to be exploited. I know how I wish we could all see what Jesus showed me eight years ago on the shore of Capernaum, that he is the only truth claim, not only that is true, he is the only absolute truth claim that will never exploit you. You will never be exploited by Jesus like you are by other groups and people and factions you put your faith and hope in in the past. Jesus will never exploit you. In fact, he insisted on being exploited for you. I know it's scary to think about putting your full faith in something as absolute as this, but I would ask you the same question that I found myself asking when I was moving from doubt and skepticism toward faith in Jesus. Really, it was two questions. First, is it more reasonable than not that a God exists? I decided, yes, it must be more reasonable that this creation, this universe had a creator. And second, if this God exists based on our experience in this world and what we know to be true and good, things like beauty and love and sacrifice and heroism, what kind of character would we expect this God to embody? If he is the absolute good, what would we expect him to be like? When I wrestled with that question, I found myself again and again centering on the face of Jesus. The heroic, sacrificial, loving, good shepherd who goes and seeks the lost one. The, the one who has mercy on the sinner. The one who sees me just as I am and loves me nonetheless. He, he would love me the same if I rejected him the rest of my life. He would love me the same if I preached a beautiful sermon every single Sunday for the rest of my life. It wouldn't move the needle. His love is absolute. It is unconditional. It just is. And the same is true for you. His love is unconditional for you. And he will never exploit you or take advantage of you. There are some people who will look at you today some people indeed in your life, maybe with you here at church today or at home, wherever you're watching, they look at you and they see part of you. They see one part of who you are and then there's other people in your life who will look at you and they'll see another limited part of who you are. Some people see one face in your life and others see another face in your life. There is only one artist though. There's only one creator who made you and who knows who you really are. And he made you as you are. He loves you as you are. He wants to love you in such a way that he transforms your heart. He mends what's broken. He brings wholeness back where there, where there has been shame. And he sets you free to live the life he created you to live in the first place. Don't let fear get in the way of this. I, I beg you not to let your shame or your, or, or your skepticism cloud what you know to be true right now, that there is a God and he is Jesus and he is love. Would you pray with me?
God, I pray that we would never cease to be a church that honestly pursues your truth. Help us never to fear questions and doubts when they are honestly being pursued and when questions are sincerely being asked, Lord, help us to inspire one another to seek more truth all the time because the more truth we find, the more of you we find. And for those in our community who just aren't quite sure, in spite of this message today, they're just not quite sure and they're, they're stuck a little bit in disbelief or in cynicism perhaps, and they're just not quite sure they're ready, I pray for extra grace for them today. Lord, continue through your spirit of truth to minister to their hearts until they are ready to say yes to you. Remind us, God, that saying yes to you is not saying yes to a preacher. It's not saying yes to a church or to a denomination. Saying yes to you is saying yes to reality in its truest form. It's saying yes to relationship with a God who will never let us go no matter what. We thank you, Father for your love. We thank you for Jesus who shows us your heart and your face. We pray in his name. Amen.